great pressure to welcome Graham Harmer again at, uh, at the LSC at the Anthem seminar. Uh, Graham is uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at um, the American University in Cairo, and this is his third time here at the LSC. Uh, he gave a talk last uh, November about uh, Latour and Heidegger, connecting Latour and Heidegger. Then we had the Harmon Review, where we um, had a debate between Graham and Bruno Latour about Graham's book about Bruno Latour uh, in February. And uh, now Graham will return to a theme um, uh, that we have um, heard him speak at Goldsmiths uh, last uh, year about, uh, about Manuel de Lana's assemblage theory. And uh, we're, we'll be discussing his paper, the, the assemblage theory of society. So, uh, although it's a very, you know, our intention is to have a very informal meeting, but uh, let's put our hands together and welcome Graham just to uh, present it. Sounds good. So, <laughs> so, so, Graham, over to you. Thanks. Uh, the paper that was made available to all of you is the paper I gave in Stavanger, Norway, on November 8th at the large Deleuze conference that was held there, where there were about six invited speakers and a number of other speakers. I was actually plan B for that conference, I should admit, and the reporter. They wanted Zalanda himself. They, the rest of the papers were on Deleuze. They wanted one of Zalanda by Zalanda, and he couldn't, he was so busy that uh, I guess I was nominated to take his place, having given the paper at Goldsmiths about him. And this PowerPoint presentation today is going to be a condensation of that with some things added on the end, as Peter said. Thanks to Peter for preparing this show. I'm not very good at doing these yet. So let me start here with a uh, mood-setting image of Delana himself, one of the great charismatic rock stars, along with Slavoj Žižek of contemporary economic philosophy. Uh, Delana, for those who don't know, comes from Mexico. He was born in 1952. He's been based in New York for a long time, since at least the mid-1970s, and was originally a filmmaker. And one of the interesting things about him is that he's completely self-taught in philosophy. He has no academic training in philosophy, as far as I know. He simply educated himself, and he was on the Deleuze bandwagon pretty early, much more so than most people. He thought, this is the new materialism, this is the new realism. He had, he had ditched Marx, the foremost of his friends, and Deleuze and Guattari were his new thing. Another one of his influences that he talks about this explicitly, which he does acknowledge as Roy Boscow and critical realism. And in fact, I'm starting to slant more towards thinking that's a bigger influence than Deleuze, but I'll talk about, I talked about that in the paper and I'll mention it again today, why I think that's the case. Uh, in this paper, I cover four main points about the Mondas philosophy that are central to it. There's realism, which he defends. There are assemblages, which he defends. There is essence, which he despises and attacks, right? And there is uh, causation, which he criticizes in a way. Um, he thinks that causation is not a mechanical, linear thing, but that it's complicated by all sorts of catalysts and other peripheral factors. So I'll go through the four of these, and I will start with realism, where the two inspirations for his realism, he says, Deleuze is the main one. And he also nods to Bastard now and then. Now, the interesting thing here is that Deleuze, as far as I know, never calls himself a realist. And most of Deleuze's disciples would not call him a realist. And even if they do, that's not the reason they like him. They like him for other reasons. Um, so there's, there's some controversy surrounding uh, uh, Delanda's reading of Deleuze. And uh, Delanda, that's, this is the concept he would live or die for, I think, is realism. Realism is, is his battle cry. It's something he cannot live without. And I think this is the root of the problems he does have with Latour, which he'll be writing about in the future. He doesn't see Latour as a true realist. Um, the book after this one is the one we'll see, I think, Delanda's real critique of Latour. 
And he, he identifies realism and lives with the virtual, which is a controversial reading. And in Bhaskar, it's not so controversial with the intransitive realm, which is opposed to the transitive. It's reality as opposed to our access to reality, the way reality manifests itself, which would be the transitive. Okay, now about Dilemma's realism. Realism means that there is a real world apart from human perception of it, but it also means more than that for Dilemma. It means things are also real apart from each other. Things are not fully actualized in the way they deal with each other. So it's not just that things are hiding from human knowledge, it's that things are somehow hidden from each other in some way. Things are not fully actualized in their causal relations either. And that's one of the things that I think is really interesting and innovative about the London, because that's not usually what gets talked about. When people talk about realism, they're talking about the Kantian things in themselves. Do so they exist or don't they exist? And this debate keeps going back and forth that there are real things there outside of human access to the world or not. And in a way, I think that's a, it's a dangerous deadlock, because either way, whether you say that there's a world outside of human knowledge or not, you're still obsessed with this one gap between human and non-human. But what about the relation between two billiard balls smacking together? Why is that any different in kind from the human, knowledge, uh, human awareness of it, human knowledge of it? And Delanda allows us to put those things on the same footing. In a similar way to Latour, even though Latour is not his favorite author. Now, realism often gets identified with materialism, especially recently. I, I've been told that materialism is not the most fashionable word in France, for example, in philosophy. Everyone has to call themselves a materialist in France these days. Um, Realism means that a thing is, is real apart from all of its relations to other things. There's something real there that doesn't rely on anything else in order to exist. And yet materialism, the way things are defined in materialism, is always relationally. You're always defining things in terms of their coordinates and a spatial-temporal grids. Uh, Latour has written about this recently. The materialism is a kind of idealism, because you are abstracting from real things and all their complexity and replacing them with a model of things. It's oversimplified. Things are hard pieces of mass that occupy a, place, a point in space, and then I, I wrote about that somewhere. I forgot where I wrote about it. And then uh, uh, Benjamin Noyes, who's a great defender of Bataille, posted on his blog that actually I'm wrong. Bataille said it before the tour, but actually he's wrong because Bertrand Russell said it even earlier in the analysis of matter. So it's actually not Bataille who discovered it. And it might go even further back. Um, uh, it's, anytime you're talking about materialism, you're reducing the complexity and mystery of things to a certain well-known number of properties that define its matter. And so even though Delano calls himself a materialist most of the time, I don't think he's quite a materialist in this way. He's more of a realist. Okay, I call it weird realism. That's my own term. I call it weird because you're talking about real things that are so strange, they're more strange than any physical matter we know about, you can't quite define what they are. They're deeper than anything you can say about them. You find this in Delano, I think to some extent you also find this in Bhaskar, that uh, since real things are what are never fully actualized in any of the events that they're involved in, you can never quite say what the thing is. You can only sort of hint at it or suggest it. Um, um, you're sort of pointing vaguely to things that never fully manifest themselves. Uh, those of you who may know a little bit about analytic philosophy of language, this is what makes Saul Kripke different from the mainstream that he attacked in analytic philosophy of language. Or people like Russell and Frege were saying that a name is just an abbreviation for all the qualities we know about a singular person. So if you say Harmon is just a shorthand for 20 pages of information about me. Whereas for Kripke, that's not true. You're pointing sort of vaguely at something that's deeper than all those, because you can falsify those facts that are known about me and I still be me within certain limits. So I, I cannot be replaced by a list of facts about me. I'm something that, some principle that's holding those facts together, and it might remain the same even if the facts were changed. Um, okay, so now I'm going on to the second point. That was all about realism. Realism for Delanda is that 
there are real things outside of human awareness, which is what he emphasizes, but there are also real things apart from interactions among the, um, all the things that are not human. Second point is assemblages. I should have said something about the history of Delano's books. He's written four, so I published four so far. The first one was War in the Age of Intelligent Machines in the early 1990s, which already made a bit of a splash. And then there's a thousand years of nonlinear history. Um, the wonderful book in which Delano shows his amazing ability to synthesize material from the sciences and history and philosophy and all kinds of different fields. Then his really acclaimed book on Deleuze, Intensive Science and Virtual Philosophy in 2002, which was his third book, which put him on the Deleuze map. And finally, in 2006, A New Philosophy of Society, which is where he talks most about assemblages. And there's a fifth one that he's finished, and the sixth one is the one where he's going to talk about the tour, which he's just getting started on writing now. The assemblages means that there are no things that are final units of atomic facts. Everything you can find in reality is like a black box in the tour. Anything you can find, you can open it up and find there are many parts forming it. And, um, but it's also more than those parts. Something emerges from the lineup. A new thing is created when you put certain parts together. Not always, but if a thing is real, that means it is more than its parts. So he's not a reductionist. And he's not a materialist in the usual sense, because most people are usually reductionists. They think you can just subtract away all these frivolous superficial properties and get down to some really basic layer of reality, microphysical particles that everything is made of. And you can't do that for Atlanta. Things exist at all different sizes, which is another point he has in common with Latour, despite his disagreement with him. Latour also objects, actors exist at any different level of scale. A society or an atom or a, a tool, anything. Anything of any, any size can be an actor. And also for Atlanta, it can be an assemblage. But also, um, Assemblages are autonomous compared to all the relations in which they enter, because he's a realist. He doesn't think a thing is defined by its relations, which Latour does, that is a difference between them. For Delano, a thing is, is, is non-relational to a certain extent, because it, it never is fully actualized in any relation that it has. Okay? Um, here are Delano's criteria that he gives in that book for an emergent entity. How do we know a thing is emergent? Well, the form that he gives in that book and he doesn't put them in a neat table like this, but if you go to pages 34 to 40 of that book, they're more or less discussed. He can actually give five, but I think two of them are similar, so I put them as four. One is that if it has retroactive effects on its parts, uh, then you can say that it's a real emergent thing. So if the LSC is somehow built out of parts and people, then it has a retroactive effect that changes the people that build it. That's one signal that the LSC is a real assemblage. It's not just a, a word. It's not just an aggregate of stuff put together, as Leibniz would have said. The LSE is a real thing because it can affect its components retroactively. Redundant causation, which I think is the most interesting one, which is that uh, a thing doesn't need all of its parts. That proves that it's real. So LSE, you can take out that chair, replace it with another chair, kick out a few people, bring in new people. Within certain limits, it would still be the same institution, obviously. So that's, the, that's what redundant causation means. You don't need all the things that are part of it in order for it to be what it is. It causes power on its own level. In the LSE can affect other institutions that are of its own size and not just its own parts. And finally, it generates new parts. Okay, we're in one right now. This building has been generated. It's part of LSE, even though the LSE didn't need it to exist. It generates it as an additional component. Uh, and in my case, the American University in Cairo, we have just moved to a completely new campus. So we've done something a little more drastic. We've moved 25 miles to the east. Abandoned a lot of the old buildings. 
um, but we're still we're still at University in Cairo, which proves the criteria that we are an, an emergent entity. And I think the redundant causation is the most important part, the most important criterion. Sorry, um, and it has three elements. First of all, it's redundant because it is independent of the parts that create it. It has certain autonomous qualities that define it, even if we don't see those qualities. Otherwise, all things would be the same. So it must have its own qualities, uh, whether we see them or not. And finally, it's independent of its, its outward relations. I mean, the LSC may have certain relations with Sciences Po or Harvard, but take those relations away, it would still be what it is to some extent, which is sort of anti-Latorian point. There is a, a reality to the thing that is to be subtracted from its current relations with other things. Third point, the essence. Amanda hates essence. Unlike most realists, most realists love essence. There has to be a real essence of the things apart from our awareness of them. Why does Amanda hate them? Well, we have to tell you what he gives us an alternative, and you can see why he, he hates them. He doesn't like the idea that things have a fixed essence that doesn't change. He's got this Bergsonian influence. Things are, are a kind of dynamic flux or, or process of becoming, uh, and so you can't say that a thing has an essence that remains the same across time. A thing has a kind of trajectory. It's, it's changing all the time. Also, uh, he thinks if you have essence, what you have are you have a series of discrete essences that are cut off from each other. And part of why he doesn't like that is because of the influence of Darwin, which is that uh, you can't say there are fixed natural kinds of species. The species sort of gradually mutate into each other, and then at a certain point they become reproductively isolated from each other. They can't interbreed, and that's when you know a new species has been created. But they're not natural kinds. They're not created by God this way. Um, they're, they're evolving gradually. And so he, in, in the Deleuze book at least, not so much the, the new philosophy of society, but in the Deleuze book he tends to say that reality is a continuum. It's a, See, it's a kind of graded continuum where you can't cut the world into chunks. The world sort of blends in all parts of it together, whereas the actual realm things are cut off from each other, according to Delenda. I should have said, the actual is the term that he opposes to the virtual. He, and he, he shares his interpretation of the word actual with Nascar. They both criticize actualism. Actualism, the idea that a thing is is identifiable with its current actual state of affairs, which the Twitter does say, for example, the Whiteheads. A thing is what it transforms, modifies, perturbs, and creates. A thing is not something extra residue beyond that. A thing is identifiable as that. And that is not what uh, Delanda or Basca think. But they have to think that there's a, some realm of reality deeper than that, where the thing is not fully actualized in any of its relations. That's why they take such pride in being realists, whereas Latour sort of only uses this word occasionally and somewhat ironically in a few places. Um, and I will say the opposite. Because first of all, I think, this is kind of confusing and deliberately ironic here, but uh, I say in number one, Delanda's redundant causation renders genetic dynamic history redundant. Because what Delanda says is a thing is not an essence. A hydrogen atom, he says, is not a specific set of properties. A hydrogen atom is a long history through which it was created in the core of some star. Now, my, my objection to this is that because he's already talking about redundant causation, this implies that the exact history of a thing is not important. There are many different ways the hydrogen atom could have been formed. It could have been formed in the core of a different star. Not all the information of the thing's history is preserved. Some of the information in your history or mine or the history of this chair is not relevant. A lot of it's just cut off. It could have happened in many different ways, and the chair or, or you or I would still be what we are. 
Um, and so there is, not all causation is redundant, but much of it is. And so I think this, in this sense, you cannot say that things are a genetic dynamic flux, the way that the Bergsonians want to say is, and the Lewis I would say is a Bergsonian, very much. And secondly, I also don't think you can say that reality itself is a continuum. There's just some basic objections to this. Um, if, if the world were really a continuum, if you set a fire, why doesn't the, the whole universe catch a flame? If a sound is made, why isn't the sound heard everywhere? Clearly, reality is made up of distinct zones, with different character in each zone. Um, I don't see the point. I don't see what's gained by saying that the world is a continuum. Next slide. It might sound like what I'm offering in, in response to Delanda's two points is it's just sort of boring, old-fashioned realism, but it's not. Because I was saying that a thing, things do have fixed essences, and the world is also quantized in, in the specific parts that are not blended together in a continuum. But that's stranger than it sounds, because what this gets us back to is a theme I've talked about many times before, occasional causation, which is a theme that goes all the way back to Islamic philosophy in Iraq, and was taken up in the European philosophy uh, with Descartes and Lalabranche, and actually a few people in between, Cordemois and Goelinks, and some people between Descartes and Lalabranche, who, um, one way to read Descartes is, is saying the entire physical world is a, is a lump. Right? That God is needed for the communication between mind and body, but if the physical world is a giant lump, you don't need God for physical interactions between things, which is why religion and science are so distinct for Descartes. Whereas people like Cordemois, coming right up to Descartes, said, no, the universe is made of atoms. The physical universe is made of atoms. And so like the early Islamic occasionalists, God is needed even for physical interactions. God is needed as a bridge between the things. Now, assuming that none of us are satisfied with God as, as the solution to this problem, you, you can take, on a personal religious level, you can do that, but it doesn't get you very far philosophically to say God is what makes substances communicates, because they're just positing one arbitrary entity to bridge a gap that nothing else can. Uh, it leaves us with this strange problem. How do things touch? How does anything that will touch? If a thing is defined by its absence of relation, how can it relate to anything? It's a very simple, basic philosophical problem that Delanda leaves us with if you get rid of this continuum idea. Uh, causal relation is a mystery. I don't think philosophers have treated this enough as a mystery. Again, you have Hume. David Hume is thought of as somebody who treats it as a mystery, but David Hume is really just the upside-down version of the occasionalists. David Hume, instead of saying that God is, is linking everything, says it's our mind that's linking it. It's habit. It's customary conjunction. Uh, so he also, just like the occasionalist, is positing one magical super-entity, the human mind, to do what God did for the occasionalists. All the relations exist in the human mind. Nowhere else, or at least as far as we We can't know any, any other source of relations besides the human mind. Um, so that takes us to our fourth point, which is the land is attack on near causation. Which is shared by Blasco, who also does not like mechanism, does not like determinism. And they give similar reasons. I think this is an area where Bhaskar has had a lot of influence on the level. Uh, Bhaskar goes back to the analysis of John Stuart Mill of causation, who says that you can't say that there's one cause for something that happens, like an explosion. You can't say it's the lip match, it's, it's the cause of the explosion. There are many causes. The whole situation is the cause, according to Mill, because there's the dryness of the weather, there's the, the fact that there's not a night watch when you fell asleep or something, and so you're able to get in and light the match. There's the fact that you have money to buy the match. There are all these different causes that enter into the explosion. You can't, the match is just the last thing that made it happen, according to them. And for Bhaskar, uh, this is enough for us to say that there's not really determinism, because there are all these complicating factors in every causal situation. We can't say that every time the match is lit and touched to the fuse, the gunpowder will explode, because it won't. 
numerous other factors. And uh, the Lambda says something similar, which is that most interactions occur as a kind of catalysis and catalysts, not through linear mechanical causation. And the example he gives in his, his new philosophy of society book is smoking. Cigarettes do not cause cancer because, what is it, 80% of smokers do not get lung cancer ever, no matter how much they smoke. 20% do if they're heavy smokers. Uh, and it has something to do, obviously, with genetics, with um, probably how you're eating. I don't, know, I don't know what other factors that might be. Maybe certain vitamins help counteract the smoking effects. And so there are all these situations, uh, oh, sorry, all these ingredients in any situation that help determine what will happen when you're smoking. It's not just the cigarettes. So the cigarettes just have to be seen as, as a catalyst. And for, just as Bhaskar did, Delanda concludes, for some of the reasons, that you cannot say cigarettes are, are common. You cannot say cigarettes always cause cancer because they don't. And so again, you have, you have a, a model where all these, the existence of all these different complicating causes make mechanism, determinism, impossible, according to Delanda. I said this. So the slide itself is redundant. Redundant causation. I can move the slide and the top will be the same. As I've already said, multiple causal factors supposed to be indeterminism. But I would say that in fact, all they do is make it harder for us to know. They make it harder for humans to analyze the causal situation. It doesn't really problematize uh, mechanism. It doesn't problematize determinism because the Lambda just said cigarettes won't always lead to cancer. He never proves that cigarettes plus genetic factors, plus environmental factors, plus nutritional factors won't always lead to cancer. If we had a, enough knowledge, there is still room in the Lambda's model for us to be able to predict who's going to get cancer and who won't. If, if we could calculate all the, all the catalysts that are adding up. There's no real criticism of mechanism here, as far as I can see. Also, I think there's this uh, notion of Paris Paribus if you have the same situation, everything will be exactly the same, except this one um, factor. So I mean, you control for other variables, then you know the probability will be probably higher. I mean, you have direct causation in terms of probability, but that's conventional uh, algorithm. Right. There's probably the other things being equal clause, where you're just you're just removing one one of the ingredients, seeing what will happen. Yeah. And this is called intervention. Yes. So I don't see that as a decisive criticism of mechanism. So it has to be solved somewhere else. And I'm actually not going to propose an answer to that, to that today because I don't know. I don't know where to solve it. But it's, it's, it cannot be done the way they've done it, just by adding more and more complicated causes. The problem remains. Okay, now where does catalysis occur? And this is where I'm sort of going to veer away from Delana and off into my own theories. This wasn't really in the paper. It was a little bit in the paper at the end. So this is Harmon. This is Harmon, okay. <laughs> where does the catalysis occur? And my theory is that it has to occur on the inside of an object. And I'll say a little bit about why I think that's important. It occurs between images, not between real things, which are also called virtual things, for Deleuze or in transit things from Plaster. Why not? Well, because, remember, real things are things that hide from any interaction, which means, paradoxically, they're never going to be present in such a way that they can affect anything else directly. So, uh, uh, how can I explain that a little more clearly? The cigarette that, any, that I smoke, the cigarette that I smoke is not going to be the real cigarette, which for Delana doesn't really exist anyway, but I'll say more about that in a second. It wouldn't be a real cigarette, it would be some sort of 
transitive image of the cigarette, because the real cigarette would be something never actualizable, right? It would be something deeper than any possible manifestation of it to any other entity. So when I'm smoking the cigarette, I'm really smoking the kind of image of the cigarette. It's a kind of extraction or caricature or exaggeration of the real cigarette that always remains hidden from any interactions. I should have said a little more about... Um, there's something, I, there's something that's important that I have a slide for that I forgot to ask you to make a slide for. And that is that here's my real critique of both Dilemma and Nasca and why, why I think we have to have a different position. Both of them can be praised for talking about this deeper dimension of reality that is non-relational. But for both of them, it is not objects that have this status. Both of them objects tend to be actual. For Bhaskar, it is laws that tend to have the status of reality, or tendencies of things. Uh, he talks about things. He does believe in real objects, but the real objects are always active. They're always expressing themselves. They're always actualized. It's just that there are certain other contrary causes that are blocking them from full expression. So if somebody has a tendency to be suicidal, this is an example he uses, this, might, this tendency might be blocked by certain other positive things that are happening. And if you take away those positive things, the suicidal tendency could express itself, and only once in that case. There are other tendencies that could, could reactivate themselves many times. Uh, tendencies to explode. That's another tendency that exists that, that can be activated only once, according to Pascal. Uh, um, but the thing is actually exercising its tendencies at all times. So in a way, the thing is always an act. It's just that other things that are acting are blocking its being able to show all those actualizing tendencies that it has. Uh, and in Delanda's case, it isn't really objects that are real either. Objects tend to be actual for Delanda. Actual is a bad word, remember, for Delanda and Pascal. Actual means the thing is, is very determinate in its relations to the things it's, it's expressed. They both think there's something deeper than that. Uh, the reason that's the case for Delanda is that Delanda tends to think that what's real is what he calls a genus, or it's a kind of topological invariance, he calls it. So it'd be something like vertebrates, not dog or human, like an individual dog or individual human, something like vertebrates, a kind of topological possibility di uh, diagram, he calls it, at the same time, where there are many possible vertebrate creatures that can fill that topological space. So it's the topological space or an attractor, an attractor in, in uh, science, in nonlinear science, is something that's tend to draw the real position of actual objects, but they'll never quite reach it. It's kind of an asymptotic thing that they, they tend to orbit it. Or even if they're sitting on it, they're not really sitting on it, they're sort of kind of fluctuating around it. Uh, Delanda's whole 2002 book on is about these scientific concepts. Um, so both Delanda and Vascar don't really allow objects to be non-actual and real and unexpressed, which is what of course, what I argue for in all of my books, the idea that objects are something deeper than any of their manifestations to us, any of their manifestations to each other, but they're still individual objects. They're not topological grids. They're actually individual cigarettes, individual dogs. They're just not ever fully expressed in any of their relations with other things. And I think both Delana and Bhaskar fall into the trap of thinking that objects are, per se, a bad category. Objects are always going to be actual. Which, of course, in the tour they are. In the tour, actors are actual. You, can't, you don't have anything that's hidden. Um, and so I feel close to Latour in saying that actors are the heroes. There's nothing but actors. But also I feel closer to Delanda in the sense of I want the actors to be not totally expressed. That they, they have to be something deeper than their actualized state and relations. That's where I differ with Latour. And we talked about that in February here. Um, okay. So now I'm back to this slide. That was a detour to a concept without a slide. Okay, for this reason, since catalysts are merely images of these deeper things, these deeper realities, which for Delanda are, are topological structures, and for me they are 
real cigarettes, I call them tool beans, they're, they're hidden from any possible use or any possible access to them. Causation, oddly, has to occur at the level of images, because if, if you can't touch the reality of the thing, what are you touching? You're touching the image of it. And somehow, you, but you must be touching the image of it in such a way that you indirectly gain access to the reality underneath that, otherwise things wouldn't affect each other. We won't be stuck at the level of services. And, uh, do I have a slide? No. Delamas distinguishes in that book between the expressive and the material dimensions of things. The material is the hidden layer. The material, the material dimension of one end would be its infrastructure. The hidden stuff that does the work, the sewage pipes, the gas lines, the electrical grid. Whereas the expressivity of it is something kind of on the surface, the skyline, the general feel of London that you notice when you're walking around. And it, it turns out, so when you go through the way causation is laid out in Delamas, that it's really the expressive dimension that's doing all the work. Even though he tries to give a role to the material realm, he, he says that causation is mostly a matter of, of capacities, not properties. When he analyzes it, capacities are capacities to relate to other things, which means you're dealing with the, the surface level of things. Um, and so there has, there has to somehow be a collision between images and things that leads to a change in the reality of things. That's the paradox of causation. How can two things bumping into each other just as shadows or ghosts of themselves lead to, to real changes in the underlying thing? Things never touch. Okay, so now I've got something here. Oh, problems with earlier theories of causation. For most people, there is no problem with causation because we've taken over the materialist vision of causation, which is I, I smack this and it's falling off the table on the floor. There's no problem there, right? But I, the force of my hand is moving this. But this doesn't really satisfy us for the reasons I just said. If you accept that a thing is deeper, then it's relational. Reality for this bottle, when the bottle is deeper than its relational reality to my hands, you still have the problem of how the real hand affects the real bottle if they're, if they're not able to really interact with each other or ever encounter each other. And again, uh, two of the other weirder solutions that have come up in the history of philosophy you've got Islamic and French occasionalism, which is that the relation between entities is a problem, they do acknowledge the problem. How can fire burn cotton is the classic Islamic example. Um, but they just saw what it does. The solution is not so helpful. You know, maybe helpful on a personal religious level for some people, but it's not going to gain much traction in the mainstream philosophical discourse, especially now. No one's going to accept this solution. Um, um, uh, it's being recorded. Watch out. Uh, and then Hume, as I've said, is just the, the upside-down version of that because Hume says it's all in our, it's all linked together in our human habits. I, I. The relation between fire and cotton is just the customary conjunction, the constant conjunction of seeing fire and cotton over and over again. So it's really something that I experience. It's linking them. What we've never had, at least until Latour, I think this is Latour's great contribution. I think Latour is the first secular occasionalist. I said this in the manuscript. Latour is the first one to see a problem with the relation between things, but not grant a monopoly on relations to either God or the human minds. Latour says any interaction between two actors needs a third actor as a mediator between them. And his, his great example is of uh, Frédéric Joliot linking politics and neutrons in France when he tried to start the French atomic bomb project. Um, there are some problems with this, which is it's not any more clear why Joliot should be able to touch politics and neutrons than that they should be able to touch each other. But Latour is at least on the sense of seeing that there has to be a mediator every time. And a mediator could be anything. A mediator could be a person. It could be uh, an atom. It could be a piece of equipment, anything is capable of serving as a mediator. It's not just God or the human minds. And so this is an important step, I think. This is why I called him the first secular occasionalist. 
these, these indications to see the problem of relations as existing all throughout the cosmos. God of the human mind cannot be the sole solution, every relation is a mediator. My objection to the tour is that he leaves nothing outside the relations. That uh, thing is already always fully actualized in every minute, in every, in every instance, just as, as it is for white heads. In uh, Latour's works, if we're looking at Delander's terminology and applying it to Latour's works, there isn't really any reality in Latour's works. There's only actuality. Because actuality for Delander means a thing is fully expressed in its relations, so the things its effects on other things. As Latour says, again, a thing is only what it transforms, modifies, perturbs, and creates. It's nothing more than that. There's no extra residue of the thing beyond its effects. Okay, here's where I think the better solution is. So the green slides, which means we're coming to the ends. It's a symmetry with the green slides at the beginning. Uh, Causal relations have to be produced by contact between real objects and images of other objects. And where does that happen? One example is in our own lives. What happens in life? In life, the real me is what's making contact with the images of other things. It is really me that's experiencing the images of you, the images of the cigarettes that I smoke, the images of the bottle and other things, which are caricatures of the real things hidden beneath those things. But only some contacts have consequences, okay? Uh, only in some cases does the contact between a real thing and the images of other things penetrate beneath those images and affect the real thing somehow. This is only a causation. Uh, in the human sphere, I think this is what happens in aesthetics. Only when the image is severed from its qualities. Okay, let me explain this briefly. It's more simple than it sounds. Um, Along with this distinction we have between real things that are hidden from us and the images of things that are accessible to us, each of those two worlds is also split in half. I got this idea from Edmund Husserl's phenomenology. People talk about Husserl and they say, okay, Husserl only talks about the way things appear to humans, he doesn't talk about a real world, Husserl's an idealist. This is true, but Husserl also adds another discovery, which is the sentence of his whole philosophy, which is this, within the realm of appearances, there's this distinction between things and their qualities. And the way you can best, most easily see this and remember it is, I can circle an object such as this chair, and I'll be seeing different qualities of it at different times, but I'm not thinking it's a different chair every time the angle changes and every time the lighting changes, every time my mood changes. I don't think it's a different chair. I think it's the same chair appearing in different, through different profiles. And so that, is, that shows that within the world of appearance, a thing is different from the qualities through which it happens to be accidentally manifest to us at any given time. The same thing also has to be true in the real world, as Leibniz proved. Because Leibniz said, all moments, all these real things are one, but they must have a plurality of qualities or else they'd be the same. So there's a sort of uh, manifold of qualities unified together in one moment. So it's true in the real world that we're not seeing, it's also true in the apparent world that we are seeing, the world of images. And my thesis is that there are only certain cases in which the image of a thing is severed from its qualities, or in which a real thing is severed from its qualities. When the image of a real thing is, is split apart from its qualities, I say this is what happens in arts. This is why I think that arts is of more central philosophical importance than anyone realizes. Um, I won't go into all the details here, I've written about it elsewhere, but I think this is what happens in metaphor. In metaphor, you are creating a collision between two things such that one thing takes on the qualities of another thing. The example I used in real metaphysics was Max Black's example, Man is a Wolf. Some, I don't know what horrible poem he took this from. And when you, when you say man is a wolf, assuming that metaphor works for you, which it might not because it's a pre-planned one, but if it works, 
what you're getting is you're getting some kind of elusive underlying unit called man that you can't quite identify that it has wolf qualities around it somehow that don't quite fit. And so that's a case where you are really seeing the split between the thing and its qualities, whereas normally we don't. It's normally it's implicit. I don't normally think of the chair as something separate from the exact qualities that I'm, that I'm seeing right now. I, I know that the chair is deeper than this particular angle, but I don't normally think of that. Another example of this would be a proper name. You call out somebody's name. What are you calling to? You're not calling to a list of known qualities. You're calling to something deep and elusive that you can't quite describe that it's there. Um, so when it happens in the realm of images, I call this arts. When it happens in the realm of reality, this is what I call causation. Somehow causation must be explainable by splitting a real thing apart from its qualities and affecting the real thing in such a way that its qualities, which are normally essential to it, become somehow accidental. And I don't have time to develop that in detail today, but I'm going to say a little bit about this take tomorrow. I'll save it for there. But there is a deep kinship between aesthetic experience and physical causation. They're really the same thing, occurring at two different levels. Which is why I think uh, aesthetic reality has such a strong force over us. It's kind of like the the human version of causation. Okay. I won't talk about humor and comedy, even though they're on the slides. I'll leave that for some other time. Um, any force, and I put this up because I'm going to be talking about force, the force of images that take tomorrow. Any human or non-human force requires that there be a split between an object and its qualities. I think that is the key to any kind of force. If you don't get that, then you're getting, I don't have a general term for this, you're getting a kind of superficial contact with the things around you. Consider, if you know Thomas Kuhn's work, which I think is misinterpreted, Thomas Kuhn talks about paradigm shifts in science versus normal science. Paradigm shifts being the great moments of ingenious scientific revolution, Einstein, Newton, Lavoisier, and normal science, which occurs most of the time where people are solving puzzles. Kuhn is often criticized for saying that, uh, people often accuse Kuhn of saying that um, science occurs by mob rule, that normally normal science is, is proceeding by experiment and direct and detailed argument, and then all of a sudden, for arbitrary sociological reasons, people shift to some other theory that can't be explained by science. I don't think that's what it is. I think the paradigm shifts in science are moments where the object is changed. Normal science is the moment where the qualities of the object are really being shuffled around, but you're not getting any change in the underlying objects, whereas when you get a scientific revolution, what you're getting is a newly defined object. And uh, I think that serves as a model for the difference between important relations and unimportant relations in any fields. Certain things can collide and have no causal impact on each other unless they get beyond the qualities and affect the deeper underlying thing. Um, bad metaphors, bad jokes don't affect us. They don't work because they don't quite get to the core of the things the way effective metaphors and jokes do. And so um, um, that leads us to the fourfolds, yes, which I only say a little bit about because I can become a bore on this topic very easily. Fourfold is Heidegger's most mysterious concept, earth, sky, gods, and mortals. And I've tried to show in print in several places that this is not the horrible mystery and obscure riddle that people think it is. It's completely explainable by these two distinct, these distinctions in two different levels. You've got a distinction on the layer of real things between objects and their qualities, and then you've got the same distinction on the level of the phenomena between objects and their qualities. This is where you get the fourfold, and I think you can build an entire metaphysics out of this, because Heidegger is going so deep with this. And if you can talk about how the, the four parts of an object interact, you can explain almost anything in metaphysics, I think. 
And I say aesthetics sticks to the bottom of the world because for the reasons I've just said, I think aesthetics and causation have the same roots. They're touching on something very deep. They're touching on the split between objects and their qualities. And I can't hide to this from Delanda. I guess, uh, oh, because I think Delanda gives us the distinction between real objects or, or intransitive reality and their surfaces as manifested to other things. And I just wanted to complicate that with a second opposition, which you find really only in Husserl, in which even Husserl scholars don't usually uh, do much with this, because they're so hung up on whether or not Husserl's an idealist, whether or not there's something behind the ideal world. And there's not, actually, according to me, but there is still another dualism going on in Husserl. Things are split apart, even if they're only phenomenal to us. Okay, so I will stop there and leave it to your questions. Are we going to leave the recorder on? Are you guys all right with that? Mm -hmm. um, let's thank Graham for this. And uh, I think I will try to uh, sort of act as a chairperson to um, facilitate the discussion. And uh, so one suggestion I have that I imagine we all got sort of different levels of familiarity with you know all these different um, philosophies and concepts and you know ideas. So I was just wondering if we could maybe spend a bit of time if you got any questions or clarification that you, you know, there's anything it was in the paper or in the presentation that, um, you know, some of these concepts might need some clarifying and then perhaps we'll take up some of the substantive, more substantive issues after that. Is that, is that alright? I mean, just in case to, to, to sort of establish a common ground that, you know, what we are um, sort of talking Maybe I should first make sure everyone understood emergence, because that was really the key of the, the whole paper, I think. Um, two concepts that are often used against emergence, one of them would be reductionism, of course. You're saying a thing is nothing more than the micro-physical particles that make it up, and emergence counters that by saying, no, at each level there is a new reality that isn't just explainable by the pieces that make it up. The other way to get out of it, or to, to oppose emergence, would be the other direction, which is functionalism, which is to say, well, there is no real table as a real thing. A table is what what it's used for by other people. So re reductionism will be taking it downwards and saying there's nothing here but atoms or quarks, electrons, whereas functionalism will be to say a table is only a table if people are using it as a table. And emergence will say, no, there is a real table there. It might not be used at any given moment by people, but there, is some, there are some table properties, which doesn't mean everyone who believes in emergence believes that tables are emergence. You, you could believe in emergence but not believe everything meets those criteria. Talanda, like Latour, has a very broad range of what he accepts is a real emergent reality. So that is really the most important thing. And, and what I would criticize in Zelanda's criteria of emergence is that they have too much to do with how the thing affects other realities. Three of the four criteria Zelanda gives for emergence are basically saying a thing is emergent if it affects other things, whether it's their own, its own parts or other things. And I think that's less important than the fact that the thing has some intrinsic reality. Couldn't there be sleeping objects? This is what I was talking about in France. Dormant entities that are real, that have their own qualities, that just aren't affecting anything right now. Or maybe they wouldn't affect anything ever. I mentioned in the paper the example of a McCain-Victory Coalition. We'll never know now. Could there have been a real McCain-Victory Coalition that exists in reality even though it was never actualized? I'd say yes, I, possibly, quite possibly. He just, his strategist just bumbled around too much and never quite activated it. And so it was never used, but it could have been there. It could have been, if they had skillfully done it, it might have been there. Um, whereas the usual view would be, no, certain things exist only in the moment of their actualization. Even, even Bhaskar says that about social entities. Bhaskar says, 
what makes social entities different from physical entities is that social entities are only real when they're actualized. And again, I'm not so sure that's true, because you could have certain demographic groups that are just waiting to be unleashed by some shared phenomenon that unifies them, but the, the demographic group might be real. It just might not ever express itself. Um, you've got the Obama coalition, which was actualized. But couldn't it have... Didn't the Obama coalition pre-exist November 4th, or pre-exist even the campaign in some sense? There had to be sociological realities there. How, how, was, how was Obama able to unify hip young high-tech workers, well-off educated people, the African-American votes, the Latino votes, and whatever, whatever other groups voted heavily for Obama? Um, um, were those groups really not unified before he did it? That's what the tour would say, I think. Obama had to do the work to unify them. I would say Obama had to do the work to actualize that unification, but the unification might have already been there. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been able to, to piece them together. That's my view. Now, of course, the problem there is that then you can have this world filled with all these weird entities that are disembodied, that aren't ever expressed. Like victory coalitions for me, well, not even running. Um, um, and that is a problem, I admit. It's this kind of bloated universe where all these things exist. But I think a thing... You could have some criteria that keep it in check. You could say a thing has to have real qualities. And not all possible things have real qualities. Because to have real qualities, you have to piece together real parts. Um, oh, yes, go ahead. Uh, so I, have, uh, I, I know of a different kind of definition of emergence, but I'm not sure whether it would fit with that. Mm-hmm. So what I know about emergence, what I heard about emergence, is that there is a relationship between collective, or the properties of collective, and the properties of the individuals that constitute it. Okay, so for example, if you have atoms in a, in a vessel, then they run around certain velocities and changing the velocities, but on average, you know, they have a certain temperature, which the temperature cannot be attributed to any one of those yeah. uh, you know, atoms, but to the properties of the collective as a whole. Now the question is, uh, what is the relationship between the qualities of the collective and the qualities of uh, the microstates of all these atoms? And uh, the traditional answer is that there is always a one-to-many relation. This is called supervenience. Mm-hmm. So that would mean the same temperature, the same state of the collective, would be could be mapped to many states of the to many microstates of the of the atoms running around. Mm-hmm. An emergent, which is a very controversial idea, would say, well, no, there is not a one-to-many relationship. Actually, a many-to many-to-one relation. That is. Uh, for the same state of the atoms, there would be many temperatures, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. So there would be the same microstate would give rise to many different states of the collective. That's what that's what I know is the idea of emergence is very controversial in the political philosophy. Yes, that, that definition of it would be very controversial because then it, then it would seem that. Um, the unified thing is not supervenience on the parts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm willing to take a, a sort of slimmer definition of emergence just to say that I guess what I'm saying by emergence is closer to what you mean by supervenience. It's not controversial. Except that they distinguish between what they call logical supervenience and natural supervenience. Uh, sometimes, at least Chalmers does. Logical supervenience means that there's nothing more to the higher level facts than there was to the lower level facts. So like a table, there's nothing more to the table than the atoms and their position. Whereas you could still have what he calls natural supervenience, which means there's still only one table for that arrangement of atoms, but the table still has different qualities than the atoms. That, that's but, that, 
Right, that's not, so, not as controversial as the kind you're talking about, which I would, I would not agree with the other kind either. I, I'm, I'm enough of a physicalist, I guess, to not think that you can have many different tables for the same arrangement of atoms. That's what I mean, merchant. That's yeah. like the butterfly effect, basically, mm-hmm. that you have so, so that you have the same kind of microstate, but, you know, different uh, collective properties. Right. So if you did that, then determinism would really be dead. But I'm, I'm not sure how you get to that. Uh, do you mind if I just, just to sort of um, open up the... So, sure. so the, the, the field of civic discussion that I provide sort of the context for the for the rationale of um, of, of our meeting actually just to um, because people sort of start from the different different kinds of fields that uh, I mean those of us who are in information systems you know we're seeing the notion of assemblage pop up people using it as a metaphor to explain certain phenomena and different uh, sort of parts of um, you know, sociology and sort of the two most uh, uh, prominent traditions that use uh, this term. One of them is, as you said, Latour and Anton network uh, theory that um, use assemblage as, as a notion. And then, of course, there is Delanda. And so one really intriguing question is, what is the difference between these two understandings of assemblage? And of course, a lot of us here, PhD students, are interested in also the sort of the methodological issues or the issues of what do these concepts do or tell us or how we can sort of uh, apply or, or resort to or draw on these ideas to, in, a, in our own research, which would say in our, in my case, it's, you know, it's the social study of information systems and, and technology. And, and maybe I should also mention that um, Giovanni Francesco, who's here, has just published a book uh, recently. It's got a number of chapters on there on assemblages um, in relation to uh, using that um, idea for describing um, e-government, right? So, um, and, and I think you're, you're, all, you're even not mentioning um, systems uh, theory or, or Lumen. Lumen? I mean, the, the, the use I use, the use I make of the quantum assemblage is just, uh, I mean, I use it for empirical purposes. And, uh, I mean, we have observed the emergence of very strange kind of, uh, I would say, complexes of relations in institu- you know, institutional settings, and we didn't know how to call them. Uh, they're, not, they're not systems because they don't have the level of integration of systems, but they're not separate entities. They're not so you know, drawing on the relationship, but not the lesser battery because. I don't like that much. I mean, it's too fluffy in a way. Uh, uh, it's more in you know, a empirical sense. Uh, Bob Cooper spoke about the sandwiches, this, this paper, sandwiches not. So, you know, I, mean, I, 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 I feel lots of affinities between uh, this, this kind of uh, empirical object that we call a sandwich and uh, I mean, the only difference here, I mean, I believe in this paper is that, I mean, I don't see, well, first of all, I'm not prepared, and then I don't see at the moment the utility of making it into an ontology. I mean, uh, I mean Galanda seems to me says that, that the whole world is made of assemblages. Mm-hmm. Well, I wouldn't be so, I wouldn't dare to 
shape. I don't know. This is a philosophical statement. I'm saying that uh, you know the kind of techno, technical institutional configuration that we found in, in the making of uh, information infrastructures and e-government systems look like assemblages rather than systems. So they're not even hybrid. You know, they're not hybrid because a hybrid is something that has merged. It's more like uh, I mean the, the, the I mean the components. If you want to speak of components of the sandwich, keep their own uh, specificity. They don't they don't completely merge into into into, into uh, another entity which is a whole. So that's you know that's the basic um, idea that I have. He does make a metaphysical statement that uh, you don't have these seamless holes, things are assemblages. Um, I can't at the moment remember what argument he uses that there are no seamless holes. It's been a while since I looked at the original book. Then the problem is that assemblage, you know, it might evoke kind of mechanical that you, you put things together, you assemble. Uh, on the other hand, the way Bob Cooper uses this and uh, suggests an idea of fluidity, uh, the fact that assemblages are never, they're never the same. I mean, they always in a state of flux. And, uh, and, uh, and that, that's, that's what we found, because, for example, in uh, this kind of uh, e-government uh, Systems or services or infrastructure, they change over the time and book components and things on top of them and establish new relationships. And uh, uh, So the basic, they, they maintain some kind of imbalance, but even if they're completely different, they, they change over the time. So I mean, I was, you know, puzzled by that. So what makes it not a system is just that the individual components are able to impact the entire thing without being absorbed in it? Yeah, without being, you know, without being fully integrated. And, um, and uh, it's an interesting uh, statement by Cooper. He says, you know, in an assemblage, you should never look to an assemblage as, a, as an entity. I mean, what, in the assemblage, what counts in an assemblage is the in-between. And the, and the in between changes all the time because, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, for example, I mean, I take this example that you make or that other makes about uh, the Pacific Ocean, Angela Merkel, and the set of four points and things that exist or will exist. I mean, they, I, mean, I can imagine, you know, an extreme situation mm -hmm. in which you empirically put these things together. Yes. But, but I mean, they're very common. I mean, you know, they don't happen to be together most of the time. I mean, right. you can, that's, that's a useful uh, mental experiment. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the, the objects in this room, you know, they might well be assemblages. You know, they mm -hmm. might be assembled in different ways. And, uh, mm -hmm. and they don't count as singles. I mean, this chair is completely significant there. I mean, 
give a complex object, but problems with complex objects are not immediately accessible. So by describing them, um, they emerge maybe as some kind of assemblages. So I was just wondering, what, where does this issue of work come up in, 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 in the London? Because you, you gave this example that, okay, the LSC extended itself with this part. But I mean, it's took an awful lot of work to construct this building. Or even if uh, place, parts of LSC get replaced, let's say a new lecture gets hired. But it's not so easy actually to get into the LSC. <laughs> to get hired as a lecturer, you have to do an awful lot of work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's not really able to talk about what a thing could have done as much. 
Um, and, and that kind of leaves him open to the sort of, but, you know, why do something in the first place? So, you know, the only thing he said was, you know, because of this sort of desire between things to, you know, the, you know, the, the, the desires, I think he said in February. You know, because, you know, the, the question came up, you know, but, you know, wh- why assemble these things? You know, what's the sort of, the, the, the initial, you know, uh, spark, you know, he's is, is like, well, you know, they're kind of de- desirous, you know, to... To interact, but you know, kind of again, leaves you unsatisfied. You know, yeah. The, answer, um. the the one place where I, I remember that that's not the case, where he's trying for a counterfactual, so the, when he's interviewing Michel Serre, and he keeps trying to raise the question of the other possible Serres that could have existed that didn't, and so that is, he's trying to probe at that there, but he's not really able to give a method to account for those sorts of cases. What a thing could have been. So are you making counterfactuals? Uh, oh, I think so, because uh, I mean, Boscott calls them transfactuals. I think Delando would probably be fine with the term counterfactual, because, or, or counteractual at least, because a thing can be actualized in many different ways than what it was. Um, so yeah, sure, there's plenty of room for that in, in Delando. That's a major piece of his, his vision, I think, the fact that a thing is never reducible to what actually happened to it. Whereas in the Fulatory, it always is, nothing more than what happened to it. This dichotomy between what the thing actually is, or what it calls creature, as I understand. Yes. And uh, the actual way it presents itself to the world at that moment. This dichotomy, is that something connected to you know, the secondary primary uh, levels? Interesting. Um, for many philosophers, it would be. For Delanda. See, primary and secondary, he's talking about in John Locke, where the primary qualities of a thing are the, the physical matter, because no, no perceiver is needed for a thing to have its physical matter. The stuff in my refrigerator back in Egypt still is made of material. It just doesn't have a color, a taste, or a smell right now, because no one is there to taste it, see it, or eat it. Um, I was trying to say in my presentation, primary qualities are not deep enough. They're still too much like secondary qualities, because they're, they're material, and material is relational, because material is is defined in terms of its relations to other things in the environment, its relations to space and time. So I think it's even deeper than the primary qualities. I would put primary and secondary on the same level, which Barclay also does. He says there's no difference between them. Right? Everything's a secondary quality. I would say primary and secondary qualities are both secondary, but I think there's something deeper than both of those. It's not the material. It's the, it's the, it's the substantial form, they used to call it. And, yeah, it's an essence. I have no problem with essence. The essence has such a bad name these days in philosophy, but I think, I think only because people mix too many different parts of essence together. Uh, when, when Heidegger and Derrida criticize essence, all they're really criticizing is the idea that the essence of a thing can be incarnated in a privileged form, so that, for example, the, the Germans and the Greeks are more human than any other humans, right? Because they somehow are more thrown out into nothingness than the other cultures. How can you have being thrown out into nothingness be a general trait of all humans in general, and then say that the Germans and Greeks embody it better than the others? There's a contradiction there. Um, um, but I don't have any... Pr- essence... Believing in, in um, ontotheology and being in realism aren't the same thing, is what I've said elsewhere. Ontotheology is what Heidegger and Derrida criticized. The idea that certain individual beings are privileged and better exemplify the true reality than other things do. But that's not the same as realism. Realism is just the idea that there's a hidden reality. Not, you're not saying it can be expressed perfectly in any... In, you can't. If I say there's a hidden essence to humans, that doesn't mean the Germans or the Greeks can embody it better than the others. I would say no. I would say nothing can embody it any better or worse than anything else. But there is, that doesn't mean there's not an essence there. 
Um, okay. okay so, so could you say that there would be um, a thing, somehow its expression, and the expression would be a thing, and it would have another expression? Could you imagine a chain? I suppose, because I can give I can give a word, I can call this bottle, and there's probably an essence of the word, because the essence of the word remains the same, whether I whether however my pronunciation changes slightly. And then I suppose that too could be turned into an object. It's not necessarily an infinite regress though, because you actually have to perform each of the steps to make that happen. Um, so then we, we went away from dichotomy relationships. You mean because there's a chain? Except that each step in the chain would have the two sides. I'm glad you mentioned this, because um, one of the nice things about both Delanda and Latour is that I think this is a problem with Deleuze. I think Deleuze turns it too much into a dichotomy, where you've got the virtual world and you've got the actual world on top of it. Whereas Delanda and, and Latour allow a descending chain where each step in the chain has a, a real side and an actual side. And I don't, I don't think Deleuze has enough of that. I think something that's actual is only actual. Yep. I think, I mean, the, also the idea that he kind of differentiates between what is a, a universal yes. singularity and individual singularity yeah. is kind of, you know, giving this dichotomy more, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't get if it's just an epistemological kind of differentiation or if it has more than that. Uh, uh, what he means by universal, like a species, yeah. uh, Ever is, is universal right. and, and dog is individual. Right. You did a very careful reading of the paper. I'm impressed. For, <laughs> for those who might not have had the time to do it, what, he, what he, uh, Delanda says is that in Aristotle you have the genus, the species, and the individual. There's three terms. And Delanda shakes that up a bit. He says there are no species. There is no such thing as dog. There's just individual dogs. And so those are the individuals. And then you've got a deeper thing, which is genus, which is vertebrates. He never really explains why there aren't, there's a dog, but there is vertebrates. That's, that's one thing he doesn't answer. But uh, he, calls, he calls vertebrate a universal singularity, and, do, and the dog is an individual singularity. And they're governed by two different sets of rules. And he never really explains why this is the case. Why should it be that... First of all, why should it be that there's such a thing as vertebrate anyway if there's not such a thing as dog? And second of all, why should individual dogs be governed by different rules? This is why I complained about both Delanda and Bhaskar not thinking objects are weird enough. They think, uh, if you're talking about objects, you're already at this boring level of actualization and relations. And so if, if you want to talk about the real that hides, it's always got to be something pre-individual. And that's the fashion now. That's Deleuze and Simon Dolan, all these figures who think that individualization is the, where the real action is in philosophy. Whereas I think it's the individuals. The individual's are already weird enough. You don't need to add these processes of individualization. This is already pretty weird. You know, if you consider that this... If we think that a plastic bottle is a real thing, which I do, uh, the plastic bottle, the reality of it is deeper than anything we see of it or than any relation to it, even though it was manufactured. Like a, a new mysterious reality was created when this bottle was manufactured. Uh, but Delana and Bhaskar, I don't think, would see this as that important. The, the, the real is deeper than this. It's pretty individual, at least especially for Delana. Uh, so how much can we call them realists? Yeah, I guess they call themselves realists because they think there's something deeper than relations. They just don't think it's an object. So they're, they're sort of realists without being object-oriented, I guess I would say. Whereas you've got Latour who's object-oriented without being a realist. 
in a strict sense. Because the Torah does give us individual entities in a way that other philosophers have not. It's just then he, then he pulls this whitehead move of making them relation, purely relational. I can see why he does it. I just think it's a mistake. Um, and then the, then the Torah, as you've pointed out more than anyone, adds this plasma in his recent work, which is kind of a pre-individual. You can ask about this? That was, my, okay. uh, that was going to be my uh, sort of question. A bit. I mean, I find it interesting that, you know, both in um, Latour or, or Calon, uh, they, um, at certain moments, they invoke uh, Deleuze. Mm-hmm. It usually happens in footnotes mm-hmm. or, or in uh, end notes. Yes. And, uh, and, and it is this issue of contrasting sort of the uh, potential um, turning into a real as being sort of the traditional uh, way of thinking about things with this sort of the virtual being actualized. So, so they are, so the world is actualized virtualities as opposed to realized potentials. Yes. And, um, well, just one thing I sort of wanted to, well, so, so I was just wondering to what extent are they drawing on Deleuze, both of them. So, so is this sort of the two different branches of, you know, interpreting Deleuze? Yeah. Um, in, in Delanda and in actual network theory, and um, and also the other interesting thing, for example, in reassembling the social, is that if you, if you again compare that book with uh, Delanda's book, then in Delanda, the sort of whole virtual issue is sort of defined upfront, while for Latour, you have to work through the entire book, and only if you go through all that entire exercise, only then the plasma the image, yes, the possibility of understanding what the plasma might be or what it is, you know this. Um, other way of seeing invisible things. <laughs> um, it's quite the opposite uh, sort of process of uh, going at it. So I don't know if that's just a rhetorical device or is this sort of a fundamental difference in understanding this issue of the relationship between the virtual and the actual. I think the Torah is quite ambivalent towards Deleuze. I think when he was young, Anti-Oedipus made a big impact on him with all the machinic connections and, and all this. Then he, then he kind of went sour on Deleuze for a long time, I think. Uh, and now it's coming back. But it's coming back, I think, because of a limitation of Latour's own position that we've talked about, which is that namely, uh, Latour normally speaks as though things are totally actualized. That's what they are here and now. And then he seems to start realizing in his later books that then how can you explain change? Which is what Aristotle says. This is why Aristotle criticizes Latour's sort of position, that uh, there has to be potential. There has to be something that's not expressed currently, otherwise nothing would ever change. And the Torah seems to realize this in reassembling the social, and also the Paris book, Paris Invisible City, he was mentioning plasma already, right? He says, why do empires suddenly collapse for no reason? Why does a mediocre composer suddenly compose beautiful music? It's because of this plasma, which he says is, if, if networks are the size of the London Underground, plasma is the size of the rest of London. So the most, the re, most of the reality is this unformatted plasma. But why is it unformatted? Shouldn't there be different parts of the plasma? It seems to me that he's slipping into the bad part of Deleuze here, the bad part of Delanda's interpretation of Deleuze, the bad part of Simondon, which is that you've got this continuum that makes up reality, or Bergson, this continuum that makes up reality, and somehow it's just kind of accidentally cut into pieces through formatting. Why couldn't you have a, a real dimension of plasma that is formatted already, that is already carved up into objects? This is what I think the way it really works. But it is interesting that the Torah seems to be adding this plasma because he realizes he needs to explain change better. Um, and we'll, we'll see what he does with it. And I think that, that Paris book is the first instance of it in his works that I've been able to find. And in, the, in Resembling the Social, it's so fleeting 
that I, I think when I first read that book, I marked it, and then until you brought it up, I didn't realize how important it was, that this really is something new in its voice books. This idea that there is this massive part of reality that's not articulated in relations. That's a big concession. But it is kind of a Deleuzian move on his, the way he does it, because it's, it's not broken up into parts. There's been this whole bad tradition in the history of philosophy, too, of thinking that the world itself is this continuous lump and only the human mind breaks into parts, which I'm always leery of. Right? You've got um, Parmenides, everything is one unless the human mind, the, the senses are breaking into parts. In Anaxagoras, another pre-Socratic philosopher, the world was this giant operon that's undifferentiated and then the mind thinks and it starts spinning it really fast in a circle and it breaks into pieces. Only the mind does it. And uh, Levinas, who's one of my favorite contemporary philosophers, recent philosophers, thinks the world itself is Iliads. There it is. It's unarticulated. And, like, you can experience this in insomnia. The world seems like this blended together, inarticulate lump. And Possibly, because you, well, you're starting with being as indeterminate and immediate, and you're progressively determining it. Yeah. In Levinas's case, it's only the human mind that breaks it into pieces. And I think Heidegger turns in this direction even as well, that uh, only humans, by transcending being, break it into beings. And I worry that if Latour takes that path, that the world itself is a continuum, and it's only broken into parts accidentally. Bergson says this too. It's only by practical action that we break the world into parts. Why? Why, why say this? Why not say that? We have an intuition that the world has parts. We just can't. We just can't get at the full, full reality of those things. I think there's this assumption that talking about individual objects is, is inherently some sort of conservative position. It's identified with Aristotle, or it's identified with essence, and so the innovation is all supposed to come from saying everything is one, everything is flux, everything is becoming. That's where we are right now in terms of philosophical fashion. Uh, and I think we need to go the other direction. I think that that movement has pretty much exhausted its possibilities. And this is why I like both Delanda and Bhaskar. They give us a window on that possibility. But why don't they want objects to be the real? Why is it laws in the case of Bhaskar? Why is it vertebrates, genus in the case of Delanda? Why can't it be dog, this dog? Just this dog is not fully expressed in what people see of it. You finished up by saying aesthetics speaks to the bottom of the world. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think the, the sort of um, A&T version of that would be? <coughs> is there one? Is, is it just that aesthetically one is able to sort of see a whole set of relations in one go that sort of gives you a sort of sense of either the genius of a painting or, or something that sort of effect? Yeah. I sort of always struggle to sort of see, you know, what the sort of real take would be of, say, you know, uh, enactment with theory of something like aesthetics. Yeah, is there an anti account of aesthetics? I mean, obviously, there's going to be anti accounts of gallery dealing. Well, I mean, the, the only one I know is uh, um, the, the power of, in, uh, you know, the, the, the law, the general one, mm. whatever, eighty-six book, where uh, Latour has a chapter on. Um, I'm trying to remember who the, who the artist is, but uh, and he's sort of talking a bit more of the sort of uh, production of you know the, the sort of the almost the industrial production of aesthetics, mm -hmm. but not sort of about the aesthetic as such. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm always sort of left sort of thinking what right. what would be the is there is there one is there a take on aesthetics? I don't know how I would construct an aesthetics using ANT. It's, it's a puzzle. 
I don't think it's okay. Yes, I mean, I had a related question to this and also sort of trying to understand your, your points that you are making. And I mean, it's a sort of pretty fundamental issue about the nature of causation. And you say that it happens when this image is severed from its qualities. And um, it actually, the first thing that it reminded me of was actor network theory. <laughs> Uh, so I don't know to what extent you, you know, accept that this is almost a form of actor network theory. And, 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 and why I thought that was that, in a way, we've got the object, which is, let's say, that's the material, and the image, which we can call maybe the semiotic sort of aspect. So if you say that actor network theory is a material, material semiotic um, method for describing the world and sort of moving from matter to uh, what, 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 engaging in this particular reading of uh, reality, um, could it be that in fact it mirrors sort of the nature of causation or the nature? Of, so, 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 so is, 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 is actually the actual network theory of you know translation or, or the notion of translation as causation quite related to what you were saying? But in a way more looks um, like you are more more explicit about it. I mean, you actually explain that. Because usually we just have this um, account of how you know translation is basically uh, transformation, yep. uh, transportation and transformation at the same time, and so one one thing affects another, things transform and change uh, constantly. And could it be that you are basically accounting for the mechanism of that? I just don't know what sense it would make for the tour to say you can split a thing from its qualities. Because the thing is its qualities, or the thing is its relations. So how could you ever drive a wedge between the thing and its, and its relations? That's why I think this account of aesthetics won't work for the tour. Um, I just don't think you can use room for something like this. And I, I don't even know who, who gives it to you other than Husserl. And of course, phenomenology is not one of the tour's favorite schools. Um, well, it's just a very uh, interesting way to put this, that let's say two inanimate objects, you know, crashing to another, using your favorite example, somewhere in outer space. Mm -hmm. So, to, you know, one comet crashes into a planet. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, and uh, comet gets destroyed, there's a big hole mm -hmm. in the planet, it knocks it off to another course mm -hmm. uh, on collision with something else. Um, so uh, they were properly transformed, and these um, these objects interacted, and you seem to be suggesting that uh, you know that one one object in, in a way uh, engaged with that image, or so the image, right. the images were severed from each other to to, to, to some extent. So um, we, we seem to suggest that there was also an issue of signification or meaning or something yeah. has changed. Yeah. And there was a qualitative change in the universe as a result, which could have a very, you know, obviously if it would crash into the earth, mm -hmm. we would be quite quick to come up with some aesthetic or, um, you know, qualitative um, sort of meaning or explanation for what that means for humanity and what that means for anything else. You're asking how the case of hitting the Earth is different from the. Well, I'm just, well, I'm just uh, sort of trying to see if I understand correctly what you are saying in terms of, let's say, two inanimate objects interacting, and you know how the image gets severed from the qualities of 
the object, as, as you were saying. I mean, you gave the example of smoking a cigarette, but there we a human interacting with an inanimate object. Right. It's not exactly clear to me how it happens in the case of inanimate objects. We can see it better in the case of human things. We can, we can ask ourselves why some metaphors work and others don't, um, or why some jokes work and others don't. Um, it's not entirely clear to me why, in the case of certain physical interactions, uh, sometimes there's a causal effect, sometimes there's no causal effect when two things meet at all, or sometimes it goes in only one direction. It could be that a comet smashes into a planet and, does, and leaves no crater. If the planet were hard enough, but the comet is vaporized. It's unlikely, but it could happen. There are probably plenty of physical cases where you know, a mosquito flies into the front of a diesel truck and is smashed and nothing happens. You might think that some small thing happens to the truck, but not necessarily. It could be that there's no impact whatsoever. Um, I think what we do methodologically is we, we first have to look at the human cases and see why the object is separate from its traits first, and then we kind of retroactively try to think down to the animal level and see how it might work there. That's why, that's why I think we have to start with aesthetics to get a causation. But, but is, isn't it the, the, the sort of way we're sort of struggling to, to, to get our heads around this, why Latour kind of almost says, just let's leave that to, to one side. Yeah, maybe there is a, a plasma out there that, you know, is unformatted and we can't access, and, you know, bit by bit, you know, as, as we come to use it, it becomes significant and we, you know, it's formatted into, into objects or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it... As soon as we're sort of trying to des to describe, you know, just to put it to words, you know, planets, outer space, mm -hmm. we're already using all these concepts, measurements, uh, representations, you know, e even the, 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 our process of thinking about the situation is already kind of um, intervening in it. So, you know, Latour must be saying, well, you know, unless, you know, we're accessing it somehow, we can't really say much about it, so let's just leave it there. I find that as a, as a sort of quite quite acceptable solution. I mean, it's, you know, it's ultimately pragmatic, and you know, it makes it into an empirical question ultimately. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. My, my my guess is that there is kind of a link between the concept of emergence and what Latour calls plasma. And by labeling it plasma, in a way, it's almost. Uh, uh, I, I don't know, I interpret it as like um, a refusal to commit himself into something, you know, into doing a scientific research, let's say, a scientific research that he may conceive as, you know, um, enacting uh, um, a position, a political position that he would like to oppose in a way, like our uh, knowledge society, the Modernity project is not, you know, uh, is not what is going to uh, show us the lead in a way, or it's not what should be um, the characteristic of our future. If we should have a future, so so in this way, it's a sort of rejection and opposition to uh, the current. Um, you mean the plasma is the rejection? Yeah. The, 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 the plasma, I mean, the way plasma is mystified, the way that is, you know, uh, work now. I mean, we don't get exactly what is plasma. But in a way, you have the impression that plasma may be connected to 
refusal to conceive of what is plasma is a sort of you know, rejection to maybe some uh, theories or some approaches that try to take, to show value, for example, out of emergence, like how emergence may be valuable to some company or to the, to the economy. So this rejection is just laying on the mystical side of, you know, uh, uh, the plasma thing that is something that is not uh, so conceivable, so clear. I, mean, I, I, I don't find it so mystical. But, I mean, this idea of unformatted. I don't. It just sounds like traditional matter to me. That's why I'm yeah. not. When you say unformatted, that means it's material, it's prime material. Mm. And um, I worry about that because the only role it seems to play is it kind of appeals to it when he needs it to explain change. Why is there a sudden change that wasn't explained by the past state of the actor networks? because there's a plasma that's larger than the city of London. And it's an interesting twist in his work, but of course, yeah, just in a few footnotes and maybe a couple of small textual references in the main text to be something social. And we'll see if whatsoever writes a treatise on the, on the plasma. Uh, well, I mean, sometimes uh, I almost think that there are sort of two different uh, sort of interpretations there that he even suggests. Uh, I mean, not sorry, that himself suggests, because... Uh, to one extent, we can talk about this whole plasma thing as we are doing right now as this sort of ontological sort of category. Cate category. Yeah. But, so, um, so device but, but when we last him um, that question when he was here, mm. um, and even at some points in um, in the book, it seems to plasma simply sounds like well, well, it stands for the the hidden masses, the unaccounted mm. objects, basically almost like you know if you say that the networks are the uh, the knowledge that has been already constructed by science and what is sort of, uh, what, what is available to us, then the hidden masses are all these mundane objects and everything else that has not been, uh, you know, uh, linked into our everyday um, sort of understanding of, of reality. Even what he reminds me of, you know, when, when St. Paul went to Athens and, you know, he, there was this statue to the unknown god, you know, to the god who wasn't known yet or whatever, and he used this device to say, well, I'm coming, you know, from this god, you know, to, to tell you about him. Yeah, so he kind of used it. But you know, they, they always had you know, the 12 gods, and it was like the, the one that you know, nothing could be said about, you know, was unknown. <laughs> and it's, I don't know, it strikes me you know, the same kind of thing. You know, it's sort of like something that you just need there because you can't account, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not accountable for, it's just sort of something extra that's, that's there. And for, for me, it's sort of seemed like a, more of a device than a sort of mystical thing. But maybe, maybe, I, maybe it's my, my reading of it, I don't know. Plasma seems to be the thing into which uh, things collapse into, like a Enron or whatever. It was an existing entity, it collapsed. The Soviet Union you know, existed, it sort of collapsed, and so plasma sort of soaks up all this excess of things that you know, disappear, but, and but out of which also new things. But yeah, it's the things that we never realized as well. Yeah. Not just the things that. You know, they dissolve, but it's you know, sort of they dissolve, but you know, also the way, way you know, the primordial soup that, that stuff came, came out of, maybe. But then, how, if, if the plasma is indeterminate, why would certain things come out of the primordial soup rather than others? Well, that's my exactly, problem. exactly. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, can I just uh, pick up on the point that um, Vivek um, pointed out? And, uh, well, you, you brought this whole issue of politics and the political sort of dimension of thinking.
about assemblages. And there is this interesting literature in economic sociology where they are also drawing on uh, Deleuze and uh, even, even using the sort of agent spent, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I can speak French. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I think I heard uh, Michel Ballon call it agentsment. So <laughs> it's uh, French, uh, you know, uh, and it's actually being used in um, used by uh, Mackenzie, and uh, uh, there's this whole sort of school of economic sociology drawing on science and technology studies and actual network yeah. theory, and they are describing how you know contemporary capitalism. Um, operates and the financial system and, and looking very much into describing and understanding, let's say, these derivatives that just sort of disappeared, all these trillions of dollars, you know, what exactly was going on. And it seems that this uh, being able to um, sort of trace these assemblages allows to sort of understand certain mechanisms that make the stability of the world in the way that it is. You know, so political structures and economic relations and things like that. And so there seems to be very strong sort of political relevance in tracing these kind of objects, strange objects, which are not immediately apparent, but which regulate uh, the functioning of the economic system or, you know, regulate uh, certain interest groups, allowing them to dominate others and things like that. Um, so I'm just... Uh, just making that connection that that, 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 that there is you know, that, that this notion of assembly is also very strong in in, in that literature and as perhaps linking into this issue of politics, mm -hmm. which kind of lots us at the end of um, reassembling the social as well. Mm -hmm. The tracing of assemblies is a political act mm -hmm. um, in a way. So well, I'm just wondering because this is you know one thing that sort of people level at philosophers. You know, just like when there was Heidegger and Heidegger's politics and, you know, the whole issue of ethics, politics and philosophy, that where do you see your uh, take on this whole issue of causality and the nature of assemblages as understanding, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a notion of objects? You know, what is its politics? Yeah, I mean, what does it do for politics or what is the, the, the re relevance? We've been sort of caught in a bind for the past century or more where the, the great philosophers didn't really have political theories. Uh, Leo Strauss, of all people, makes this point in one of his lectures that uh, if, you, if you look at Heidegger, Lusserow, Bergson, and Whitehead as the four great philosophers of the early 20th century, they have negligible things to tell us about political philosophy, all of them. It's really remarkable when you think of Patton, I think of Kant or Hegel or Aristotle and Plato, what they, how much they had to tell us about politics or Aquinas, and that really disappeared from 20th century philosophy. How do we get back to that? I'm not sure. Actually, I helped you out because you started out talking about uh, McCain and Obama. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, you know, using that as an example. Yes. Um, so, if uh, Obama's election victory, you know, actually, I wanted to write a blog post at one point saying, but I never had the time, but saying that Obama, the first distributed president, <laughs> and you know what? Yes. That, that in order to achieve the election result, he actually had to create this massive percentage. Yes. So to, to, to he rearranged it, though, because, you know, in a sense, there was something that was quite well formatted. And what he did that was the clever thing that Hillary Clinton couldn't do was to actually rearrange the pieces in such a way that 
you know, uh, I mean, a, a majority for for a Democrat that has never been, a, you know, 53%, Clinton would get, you know, it's like unheard of, you know, and it's, you know, he kind of rearranged the whole uh, cons- constituencies of, of, of what, you know, the object the United States kind of was. I mean, that, that's, that's, that was, I think, what, um, you know, where sandwiches was sort of a useful way to look at it. Were you talking about the internet fundraising as well? Well, yeah, but I was specifically also talking about the agency of, you know, ICT artifacts, that the way that, you know, from the Blackberry to all the way to the blogs. But, but it was also the electoral uh, strategy. I mean, he basically, you know, through, you know, through the, the, the rule book, you know, there was, you know, the South was this, the Midwest was that, you know, the, you know, this was working class. It kind of rearranged the whole uh, kind of... Um, you know, traditional uh, political science kind of uh, objects yeah, in a new way. You know, he, he realized a new... I think he did. I think this is where Hillary Clinton misunderstood and, and why strategy didn't work. Because, you know, he, he sort of rearranged a completely different... You know, the, the, the electromathematics was stacked up in a different way. And she was sort of campaigning to that arrangement, and he sort of had a completely different So, you know, the only way to just 
further. You say, well, that is you know, an evolving, unfolding assemblage. And, uh, you know, we, our account, you know, we capture things that you know, now are not there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's, um, that's mobilizing so society. Mobilizing society, does it does it mean as
assemblage. But um, there, there's an interesting parallel between the way, let's say, Bruno Latour talks about. Um, he actually draws on this uh, concept of the thing as a gathering, which um, you know Heidegger comes from Heidegger. But basically, the idea is that in um, ancient you know, Germanic languages, the word thing actually stands for a gathering, an assembly, a parliament. So you could say that Obama cannot be an American president unless he actually does have a true parliament, which he needed basically a majority in the houses of, you know, literally, quite even literally, he needed an assembly of people in the, in, in the what is it called, House of uh, Representatives. And Electoral in College. In, because basically his power doesn't come from the fact that he ends up in the Oval Office. Um, sort of, um, he, he could still be elected as president, and if he loses his assemblage, he won't be able to get anything done. So, so in a way, the assembly is something that going to persist, or will. It's an experiment, but it's supposed to persist for a few years in order to change the United States and the world. But also in the sense where we're saying that Obama, the president, is a kind of object that is made up of all these assembled things, which include him as a kind of face to it. Yes. But, but millions of emails yeah, and uh, blog yeah. posts and programs that Graham's brother wrote. Yes. <laughs> he developed the Obama iPhone application, which the McCain people have admitted now they're very jealous of at the time. They couldn't match it. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. Graham is part of that assembly. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure if I, if, I, if I answer that question. But the other thing that was also very interesting that you asked whether you're confusing or confusing the methodology or the method of assembling or assemblage and what the object is. And, uh, at least what, from my readings, what I know is that, say, both in economics, sociology, Colin, or, or so they would actually say that social science and social scientists are very much part of the assembling force. So social scientists were part of Obama's victory force. So you say you can't separate it as a tool from as the thing that you are you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So by, by investigating it and studying it, you are actually contributing to the building various assemblages, the way you do it. If, if you do it with traditional economics, you build a particular world, and if you use a different method, you build yet another, a different world. So it's political in that, in that sense. But um, Ofer has very kindly reminded us that you know, we've been sort of going on <laughs> for two hours yeah. straight, and so this might be quite a demanding session. So we wanted to give the opportunity for people to escape if, if um, anyone you know, needs, needs a break. But also that uh, we, we were planning on you know, going out for dinner. Uh, so, 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 so you know, you're all welcome to join us if you, uh, you know, we will probably find, find a place somewhere and carry on discussion in a more relaxed and you know, informal matter. But we can also carry on as long as we like. we got the room until 7. So anyway, I just wanted to give the opportunity to bring this to a, to a close. Um, or, or if you want a, a break, but we can also carry on if you are you know, interested in pursuing some of these uh, some of these topics. So how should we do it? it Maybe easier for me if we convene for some dinner since I've been traveling all day. Yeah, I've been awake since three o'clock this morning. So, so anyway, let, let's uh, thank uh, Graham once more for. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much, thank you. and uh, thank you all also for uh, coming in.